On this special episode of the Highlander Podcast, we hear a presentation from Nick Chinsky, a leader in innovation at companies like Solomon, Heli Hansen, Arcteryx, and now Under Armour. Nick talks designing product for extreme conditions and his work designing spacesuits for Virgin Galactic. I'll keep this fairly simple. Um, I'm on actually a sabbatical from work. Every 10 years at Under Armour, you get three months off. So I am on my first ever sabbatical. Um, and I was happy to be here because I'm going skiing for a month. So I, uh, I'm traveling up the Rockies with a pit stop here. So I'm actually quite excited to have this part of my sabbatical experiences to talk to you guys. Um, I'll start with a little background about sort of design. Uh, then I'm going to talk about sort of three things that to me I think are imperative for designers to um, keep at the front of their minds as you go through your career and, and, uh, and sort of like North Stars that you want to keep your, your career sort of pointed at. No matter where you go, no matter what kind of product design you're going to get into, I think these are fairly, these, are, these three things are pretty uh, ubiquitous. Um, and then we'll have some Q&A afterwards. Um, I've been doing this a long time. I started designing uh, in 1997 or 8, something like that. Uh, so I've been at it for a while. Um, I, didn't, I didn't go to school to be a designer. I, uh, I was telling some of the guys outside, I kind of fell into it as a, as a thing that sort of needed to get done. And so I did it. Um, I actually um, spent almost 20 years climbing and skiing in the Himalayas. That was my, my passion, was to get up mountains and then come down, either walking or skiing. Uh, even tried snowboarding for a while. Um, but, but so to me, mountains have been a passion forever. Um, I didn't, I wasn't born in the mountains. I didn't really grow up around mountains. I sort of, once I started spending time in the mountains, um, it just was sort of a passion that just got fueled every time I went out there. And it could have been summer, spring, winter, fall, didn't matter. I just love being in mountains. Um, uh, and, I, you know, climbing in the Himalayas was, was a unique experience. It was the 80s. Nobody was really out there in the 80s. A lot of Polish guys, a lot of Russians, some Japanese, a couple of Americans. Uh, I am a Pole. My, both my parents are Polish, so I'm fluent in Polish. Uh, in the 80s, Poland was part of communist Russia. Um, never didn't have any access to American cash. I lived in Canada, and I would work two, three jobs at a time, make as much money as I could, and then a few friends of mine from Poland would write me and tell me what trips they were going on. And I could sort of sign on to any trip I wanted to go on. And I'd have to bring a brown paper bag full of cash. Um, and then we'd go off and do, do an adventure, whatever it happened to be that we were doing on that particular trip. Um, some, of the, some of the fun-er trips uh, I've done have been to very remote regions. Uh, in 1989, I found myself in northern Pakistan uh, on the Afghani border. Uh, we were going to go, go and try and climb a mountain called Batura Peak. It's the highest unclimbed mountain in the world at the time, um, slightly less than 8,000 meters. Um, very difficult uh, way into it, very, very remote. If you studied any history, in 1989 when the Russians were pulling out of Afghanistan, and all those hills were full, full, full of mujahideen just waiting to get back into Afghanistan. They had to make money while they were waiting, so they hired themselves out as porters. 
our porter train of 120 guys, 70% were Mujahideen. Um, us being stubborn Polacks, uh, we would negotiate a very good rate, at which point uh, porters would go on strike every morning. And they'd sit around camp till about noon, and they'd pick up their loads, carry them for a few hours, sit down again, and that would be the camp for the night. So it, what should have taken four or five days to get through took us almost 10. Every time they went on strike in the morning, we'd promise them more money. We arrive in base camp at some future date. Uh, we're setting up our tents. Time comes, you gotta pay all these guys out. We say, hey man, we're not paying you anything. We're paying you what we agreed to when we started this whole thing. And so this, uh, this very interesting thing happened at base camp where this very tense moment with these rather angry people uh, festered up into a bit of a battle. They had big sticks. We, we put together our big wavy aluminum uh, tent poles and we went at each other with these sticks and tent poles in this field in the middle of the mountains where nobody else was around. Nobody really wanted to hurt each other, we just kind of wanted to make our stand. The end of the day was we gave them a bit more money, they went away. Um, and we spent the next two months, two and a half months trying to climb this mountain. I tell you that story because um, that's sort of how all of these trips went for me. Um, none of them were scripted. They were all by the seat of your pants. Very, very fluid situations. I grew up in um, my college years, because I didn't go to college, my college years, that was what I learned, was how to deal with ridiculously fluid situations in faraway places where you didn't speak the language, you had little uh, understanding of the, the, the local cultures, um, and uh, you still had this massive challenge of trying to get up some mountain that some people or no people have ever been up before. Um, and so my, my whole 10, 15 years of doing this was very educational. As I said, I, wasn't, I don't have a background in design, but, but a, a lot of product in the 80s wasn't very good. Um, Gore-Tex was eh, kind of didn't really work very well. It was really thick, kind of sweated in it a lot. Um, every brand had their own version of this Gore-Tex. Um, and uh, so trying to work with it, uh, understanding how it worked, understanding why things didn't work. And it could have been a boot or a sleeping bag or a tent. We actually had a Gore-Tex tent made by these British guys, which seemed like an awesome idea because it's breathable, it's windproof, waterproof, it's one layer, it's like, it's lighter. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do it? So we took this tent up and it was, uh, I think it was on Everest in 89, we were on the West Ridge and um, it's cold, cold, I don't know why it was so cold, it was unbelievably cold. Anyhow, the whole tent, two guys inside it breathing nonstop, well you got like a quarter inch of ice on the inside of the tent. Um, when we froze inside the tent, it was like living in, the, in a freezer. Um, then obviously as the sun came up, all that melted and everything in the tent got soaking wet. So not, not such a great idea. Um, we abandoned those tents fairly quickly. Um, but, uh, but the idea of building product or trying to make things better um, is something that I always had as a kid. We didn't grow up with a lot, so uh, if you wanted a bike, you kind of had to build your own bike. And so my dad would drive us out to wherever it was. We lived in small mining towns, and so 
uh, we'd go to the dump and we'd find a wheel and somebody else had a frame that we'd get a frame from. We'd sort of build these bikes and, and uh, we'd tear around town on bikes. And that's how we got bikes. Skateboards was the same. We kind of pieced all of these things together. So I grew up sort of understanding that kind of the ability to make stuff was a pretty good thing because you don't always have access to things that you want just by buying them. Today it's probably a lot different, but back then there was no internet or anything like that, and so you kind of had to, had to make things. So I grew up with a really sort of curious mind. I'm always taking things apart. I always figured, like, you know, I bought this thing or I have this thing. Somebody gave me this thing. I bet you if I did this, this, this to it, I could make it better. And um, so that one way of growing up as a kid, and then the other thing of this, this whole ability to, to sort of manage very fluid situations that were never fully known, um, kind of when I, when I got into product design, um, was sort of a natural for me because I had no, I was like a six-year-old. It's like I could, there was no reason why I couldn't do it. It's like, well, why not? It's like, well, you can't do that. It's like, why not? It's like, you know, there was no, I never had that. I never had that barrier to say, well, you know, when I went to school, the guy said you couldn't do this, but I just did it. And if I didn't, it failed, awesome. I told somebody the other day, it's like, I have failed way more times than I've ever succeeded. I've been on 17 Himalayan climbing expeditions. I've summited twice. So um, every expedition was about three months long. So you roll all that time up, two summits, not, not that successful. I've been on Everest three times, never made the summit of Everest. I lost my boot um, on the Hornbein Couloir at about 8,300 meters. I was on a ledge about the size of this desk overnight. My boot froze. It's another product idea I had when, <laughs> on the way down. Um, my boot froze, and it consequently fell down into Tibet somewhere. And uh, I was left at 8,300 meters inside the Hornbein Couloir with a boot and um, a litany of frustrating uh, sort of radio calls or whatever. Um, I had to come down Everest with one boot on. Uh, lost a toe, frostbite, whole leg was frozen. Uh, was a really difficult trip. Uh, we lost a bunch of guys on that trip uh, in an avalanche. And um, but but so so the idea of of making things has always been sort of key for me. I started in the world of design fairly late. I was thirty-five, I guess, thirty-four, and. Um, I started by I can't I don't know how to draw I never went to no one taught me how to draw I don't I don't today I don't know how to draw very well um, and so I would trace my first my first endeavor was to make cool ski clothing it was sort of like the late 90s snowboarding was the was the thing like skiing sock like nobody skied anymore everybody was snowboarding and all the old guys skied and but in the late 90s skiing was sort of making a comeback you know Johnny Mosley was the Olympics you know. Skiing wasn't as nerdy as it was back, you know, in the early 90s. Uh, so in the late 90s, skiing was sort of coming back. So I sort of started this little tiny brand of like make cool ski clothing. And, but like I said, I couldn't draw, so I would trace little guys, girls out of ski magazines. And I'd photocopy them a whole bunch of times. I'd sit there with a pencil and I'd draw lines on the page. Like, hey, what if the stripe went this way? What if I used this fabric over here? And the, the brand I was working for at the time that allowed me to do this let me do it on evenings and weekends because I had an actual day job that I had to do for the big brand. 
but, the, but this little, little idea of mine was seemingly harmless to them. And they said, well, I'll go ahead and do whatever you want on evenings and weekends. They had a warehouse of fabric. They were actually one of, and we had a factory. It was in British Columbia. Uh, the brand was around. It's called was called Far West, and next to Marmot, it was the second commercial user of Gore-Tex. And so they had a big history with Gore-Tex. I learned how to sew. I learned how to pattern. I learned how to make markers. Um, um, one of my crowning achievements was I had this concept of making a catalog. Um, and all my outfits were one-to-one -one replicas on Ken and Barbie dolls. And so I would have to sew these ridiculously small ski pants with the stripe and the whole thing. It was, it was really, really difficult, but it, but it helped me become a, a better sewer. I learned super quickly through the process that just because I drew a line on my little photocopy guy or girl didn't necessarily mean it was going to translate well into a product. Um, and, uh, and because once you start patterning, you start making it, you quickly understand it's like, yeah, let's, you know, one plus one does not always do. Um, and so um, as I sort of matured in design, because I didn't really have a, a background in it, I didn't know much about it, so everything was new. Everything, every day, was, everything was new. And I was just a sponge. I just absorbed as much as I could. Um, and, in, and I think in doing so, it helped me progress pretty quickly because you, uh, um, I started to understand that I really knew, didn't know anything. And so I really had to rely on way smarter people to help shepherd my thoughts and sort of cr crazy ideas. Aesthetically, I would sort of build up some idea of what, I, what was comfortable to me aesthetically, like where, you know, what was cool, what wasn't, what, was, what I liked, um, what I didn't like, why, understanding the reasons. Um, these are all sort of important things as, as I sort of grew up through the, through the design phase. And um, I got into um, making product that was just stuff I wanted. So like back in the day, like 98, nobody was using technical fabrics to make like street clothing. So I would make like hoodies and track pants and just normal pants out of technical apparel or technical fabrics because I had access to it. And it was really cool to see people respond to it at a commercial place. Like when I went to a trade show, I would sell almost half my, half my sales came from non-technical product, just stuff that people wanted to wear, but it happened to be made out of a Polartec or a Gore-Tex or something like that. So I started, started understanding sort of the commercial side of design of like, understanding, plugging, trying to plug into what people really want and understanding that connection and how important it is. So you're not creating things in an island, on an island or just in your own head because you think that it's going to work. You kind of have to understand that it's actually going to work. And the commercial transaction is, is, the, is the only thing because it pays the bills like it's the only thing that's really important, unfortunately. You know, we're all creatives. We're artists. These are our babies. We birth these little products, we love them, um, and the last thing we want is something bad happen to them, but it always does. And the, the thing that always happens is you kind of have to sell it at the end of the day. And if you can't sell it, it's sort of like, well, why'd you make it in the first place? Because it's not, you know, so the, 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 the big thing for me was to get my head wrapped around the transactional side of design. That it's, it's, uh, it's you gotta sell it to, 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 make the, to make the whole thing make sense. I was fortunate enough last summer to spend some time with Lamborghini. 
And um, I spent some time in their design studio in, in Italy and, um, and understanding them, they're making an insanely expensive vehicle. Um, but it still has to sell, they still have to sell it. And these things are absolute works of art when you dig into what goes into making a Lamborghini. Um, just the materials and their level of understanding materials is crazy, composites, construction, and these guys, uh, men and women who are, who are doing this, totally get the transactional side of it, but they have built up this huge ability to be artists, but commercial artists. Um, so, so for me, design has always been that, that, that sort of yin and yang of you got to love it, but you got to sell it. Um, I'm not going to bore you with a lot more other stuff about sort of going through, but I, I, I have been fortunate enough to work um, at, a pla at places like Arteryx, um, uh, where I learned a ton about materials. Again, you know, to me it was like a knit woven, you know, took me a while to get there, understanding polyester nylons, dying, not dying, stretch, no stretch, mechanical stretch versus elastane, um, blah, 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 blah. You've got to be really, really, really good at material and understanding materials. If you're not, it's kind of like, it's, like, it's kind of like you're missing a huge part of the whole idea of making a product. Because to me, I think, because if you can't deconstruct something that's already made and understand how to make it better, you can't ever understand how to make it better if you don't know everything about how it's made right now. Um, and, and not just understanding it, being able to do it yourself. Because that, to me, is how you start breaking paradigms, how you start shifting paradigms, how you start understanding that if you're going to challenge the assumptions about how cool products are made, you've got to understand how they're made in the first place before you can challenge any, any process that, that makes them. And that, and that is whether it's a shoe or a Lamborghini, it makes no difference. If you want to make something better, you've got to understand how it's made first. Why people made it the way they did. Why people buy it the way it's made today. Why wouldn't they make it better? What's the different? Why, why wouldn't you want to make it 10% lighter, 10% faster, 50% smarter? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you pour all the money into making the absolute pinnacle of everything all the time? Go to Walmart. Everything's 99 cents, buck 99, 2.99, made it here, made there, whatever. The consuming public buys stuff down here, right? So, so, it, so again, understanding your consumers. Somebody's got to make the stuff that Walmart buys. I was in Nicaragua not too long ago. There's a factory down there that we work with, and uh, they make two million pieces of Walmart product a month. One factory. They've got factories all over the world that make stuff for Walmart. So you can understand volume and what people buying, and, and so you know people still need to design all that that stuff that gets made in those in those places. Um, innovation design is sort of where I went in the end. I didn't start out sort of doing that type of product, but I really enjoyed the idea of making things better or moving a concept from one place to another, and. It was really interesting um, because I, I, it's a really interesting field of design it's, because it's not necessarily product design just in and of itself. 
it, you actually have to understand the entire uh, product life cycle. Everything from the materials, the design, the design phase, the marketing of it, the sales of it. Understand all of that to, like I said earlier, deconstruct it, put it together in a better way. And so you have to be really fluid on understanding every part of that whole sphere. So, so you have to get marketing. You have to get why marketing talks a certain way to these consumers. Who are these consumers? Why are they interested in this product? How could you move them from this product purchase to that product purchase? These are all things you have to understand in sort of the, in the innovation side of it. Um, so so I, I, really, I really thrive on that because it, it gives me a lot of opportunities to play in a lot of different areas, and I quite enjoy that personally. And uh, um, I'm not disciplined enough to be sort of like, I make you know, running shoes or I make whatever. I, to me, I, I've always got to have a lot of stuff on the go. Uh, so, so I sort of fit into, into innovation design in, in of itself. Part of innovation design, what's, what is kind of fun, is that you really don't have boundaries. You can imagine pretty much anything in your field of innovation. Again, it could be a shoe or a car. You don't have a set set of sort of, this is kind of what we're looking for you to make. In innovation design, most people just leave you alone. Like they, they just look at that, that group of people. We have a very large sandbox in which to play. And there's not a lot of people in it. And that's, a, that's on purpose. Uh, innovation design is really meant to be in a very free experience because you are going to try things that fail more times than not. And it's in the failures where you learn uh, what success could look like. Um, I'll give you an example. So on the, the spacesuits, uh, we were approached by Branson, I guess it was about two years ago, to design the first commercial spacesuits for his Virgin Galactic um, project. The two CEOs, our CEO and Branson, are friends, and so that's how kind of how this whole relationship sort of uh, became a, a, an actual product reality. Um, but there were no parameters. No one's ever built or designed a commercial spacesuit. It's not like I could go online and see what they did last year and then make it a little bit better for this year. There was no such a thing. So the sandbox was really big. Under Armour didn't really have any say in what these suits were going to look like commercially. They had no product line manager. There was no material specialist. There was no, there was no nothing. There was me in a corner and just bubbling up ideas and sort of pinging them onto walls and sort of talking to a few people and, and getting a general gist of, yeah, I really don't like those. That's kind of neat. What's that all about? Um, so it's, it was incredibly freeing from that perspective. I think one of the, the, the things on, on places like that where the sandbox is very big, you need to have a lot of discipline around how you design because you can waste a ton of time doing some things that are never really going to materialize into a finished product. You just keep playing and playing and playing. And so becoming a designer who is disciplined, understanding how what you're good at, what you're not good at, and understanding the process of how you create something from your head, using the tools by yourself or your small team to make something, a prototype, a sketch, something that's kind of real, could be real, and then how do you float it along a pathway 
through some rapids to actually getting it commercially viable. And um, the, the, the nice thing for me in the, it, with the partnership with Virgin Galactic, they were largely hands-off until it became a product. Once it became a product, then they wanted to dissect it and change things. And, and so it, it, it also sort of, you have to be a designer who is comfortable understanding the landscape. This analogy is gonna be kind of weird, so bear with me, but it's, it's the only one I really have that, that I think in my, own, in my own mind kind of work. It's sort of like a war. You're gonna to go to war, you're gonna lose some battles along the way. The job is to win the war, not to win every battle. So how many battles are you prepared to lose? Um, the aesthetic one, this little trim idea that you came up with, this little zipper pull, it's like don't love it too much because it's probably not gonna make it, but maybe it will, right? So in your own mind, get comfortable with, yeah, 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 this is kind of cool, but these are some things that are gonna, you know, just get some people on edge. The spacesuit, I have a oversized gold pocket on one thigh. And I cannot tell you how many times I fought for that pocket to not get chopped off that design. Everybody hated it because it was asymmetrical. It, it, everything looked lopsided because this giant gold pocket. And they wanted to understand why the gold pocket was there. And it's like I didn't really have a good idea why it was there. I just really liked the fact that it made the whole suit look a little bit hey, what the hell's going on? Like, why is there a big gold pocket on your leg? Like, that's all I was really after. Um, but there was no reason for the gold pocket. So I quickly understood that I gotta come up with a reason because if I don't, I'm gonna lose this particular battle that I really don't wanna lose. And uh, they had me draw kinds of other sketches without the gold pocket and they said, well, maybe you could put a little bit more gold here and then everybody becomes a designer. They get their Sharpie and they get the, you know, they go, yeah, put a little more here, or why don't you change that over there, and you can put a little gold over there, and they'll be, there you go, it's done. Um, so I made up this through this thing, it's like, listen, the gold pocket is there because it's for personal items that you can take to space. Somebody's going to want to bring a flag, picture of their mother, whatever, you know. Um, and that's what I, so the, that pocket is only made for your special stuff, and it's got to be gold. And so then, then the whole temperature of the room sort of went down. It's like, no, it doesn't make, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I get it. And so the gold pocket lived. Um, but you got to understand how, how many battles you want to win and how many battles you're going to lose. I mean, I lost a lot of battles along the way. Um, but I'm glad I didn't lose that battle because that one actually did, was kind of a cool thing. Um, <clears throat> so so from, a, from a design perspective, um, being really disciplined and understanding um, the landscape, understanding the people that are going to intersect with your product designs, know who they are. Business, and I work for a big one, is not run by designers. It's not run by creatives or product people. Hang on for one sec. Um, it's run by business guys. They run numbers. They want to sell stuff at a good margin so you can make a bonus. Kind of that simple. So they're not interested in your creativity, your ability to make things look pretty. You are a part of a very big puzzle and you're the part that nobody in the rest of the puzzle knows how to really communicate with because you're a creative. You have long hair, 
you wear tight pants, you've got funky dresses, you wear a hat in, 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 uh, around, you just don't, don't fit in with them. They're all MBAs, they're all accountants and lawyers, and that's that side, uh, and you're not. So understand, as you create something, the people you're going to create and are going to look at your product are going to be business people. Understand really quickly how to talk to them. You don't have to be a business person, but you should understand what a margin is when you sell a product. You should understand what a distribution strategy is or what company, when you work for them, what their distribution strategy is. Because one of the things that they may say is, and this always drives me nuts, like, just make some cool stuff. What does that mean? Because it means 10 different things to 10 different people. So, that, so you can't get a business guy to tell you what is cool. And if you draw something you think is cool and they don't, it's like, yeah, you lose. Um, because they ultimately hold a trump card. So understand your environment and where you're going to work. Uh, because the better you understand the people that are in, typically a pod, you'll get a, a sourcing person, you'll get a marketing person, you'll probably get a product line manager of some sort, uh, you'll probably get a trims person and materials person. These are going to be five or six people around a table and there you are showing your creations. You're all the little babies that you've got there, right there for them to, to look at. Understand how to talk to them about why you did what you did, why this is good, why it's cool. Um, you know, so, so under, and you'll understand as you get to know these people how to work the room, understand how to talk to them, be good at talking to them. I've had so many designers that are amazing creatives and they don't, they, not a peep comes out of their mouths as people are basically raining down on their ideas and concepts. No capacity to defend, no capacity to understand a landscape to be able to bob and weave a little bit. I'll let you have that, but I'm taking this. You know, I'm not, not getting that. So, so figure out how you're going to build that up because the process of design in your personal space is awesome. world is rosy, you know, streets paved in gold, nothing goes wrong. You leave that little bubble, different landscape. So understand quickly what that landscape looks like. On the innovation side of things, that landscape is largely left by us to decide. When we look at a problem, we'll come up with possible solutions. And so we actually drive the boat, which is a different, a different place to be. Uh, but when we drive the boat, we typically lead with an innovation story on a product, why it's better. Then we'll figure out the marketing and all the other spins that need to come along with it. But we always lead with an innovation story. Uh, at UA, a bunch of years ago, we were making sports bras. And if you guys went to the sports bra factory in, in uh, Guangzhou in China, and they said, you know what would be cool is we've made a running shoe here. What if we just molded a running shoe? Why, why don't we just mold a running shoe? So we did. And it actually turned the whole industry up on its head because it was way faster to make, way easier to make, way less expensive to make, and it looked cool. And people got the fact that this thing looks really lightweight. Well, it's one piece of fabric, you create a mold, and away you go. Um, it wasn't super breathable. It had a couple of things that didn't work on it, but largely it was a very cool idea. Um, so that type of an innovation drives the story, and then other people will get in behind. So innovation design is a little bit different. 
and that you do tend to lead. But, but as I said earlier, you've really got to understand the components of the product that you're going to innovate. So I want to transition just for a moment. Um, and how long do I have here? Okay, all right, so I'll finish this up, and then we'll get some questions. There's three things that I think you need to do as a designer. Um, the first one is you have got to be open. Your mind should never be closed to an idea or a contradictory thought to what your thought is. Here, you have to be a sponge at all times. I'm 54 years old. I've been doing this 30-some-odd years. I'm just as big a sponge today as I was 30 years ago. At least I like to believe I am. Um, I know a crap ton more. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't mean that I close my mind to other people chiming in. My mother chimes in on my design. She says, you know what? You should do this thing. I like this one. You know, that little pocket over there? That's a good idea. You should do that. Um, everybody's a critic. Everybody's a designer. My mom's an author. Everybody is an author. Everybody thinks they can do what you guys do. Heaven forbid you tell a marketing guy how to do their job, or a PLM how to do their job, or a business guy to discuss about a distribution strategy, their heads will pop off their shoulders. But everybody's free to be a designer. So get ready for that, and be open to that. Be understanding of that. Other designers have amazing ideas on your product. And that's cool. You should take all of that in. You may not love it, but you should learn to live with it. You should take tons of notes what people say. I can't, I don't do well when people show me something and say, what do you think? It's like, I always have to take some time, ingest it, then I can come back with an answer, you know, sometimes a day or two later, which, um, so, so, so that's cool. Don't, don't be afraid of that, but, but continuously be open. At Under Armour, we've got a, a big, we're, we love slogans at Under Armour, everything's a slogan, and uh, one of the slogans we have is, uh, be, be humble, stay hungry. And the ability to stay humble is key. Um, because I think creativity is not a moment, it's an entire lifetime. You're going to be creative your whole life. You will never stop being creative. Even if you don't become a designer and you go on to do something else, you will always be creative. You either know how to draw, you color things, you see things, you photograph, you do things that are creative. You're always going to be a creative. Um, be open to other people's input into your creativity. It's not a bad thing. You should have an opinion, absolutely. You should know what you like and don't like. You should have what you would consider your boundaries. But don't get stuck in the, inside that. I work with a lot of young designers who, just because they drew it on a computer, are now telling me that that's the way it's going to have to be. Why? Uh, just because you drew it? It doesn't work that way. Uh, so get comfortable with being open to other people telling you how to make things better. Um, and get really good filters of what's BS and what's not. Um, because it's going to help you along the way. These are some of the things that, that to me are not, uh, are something that I look back on my career of, of doing this as really good um, learnings that I wish when I was your age somebody had sort of spoken into me. 
Um, second one is one that's near and dear to my heart, um, is risk. Learn to take tons of risks. Start small. Don't need to jump off a mountain on day one. Start small. But risk is what's going to create, a, make you a better creator. Because it's in these failures along this road that you are going to get better. Somebody outside there was saying, oh yeah, sometimes you go down one road and then you end up going down a completely different road that you didn't even think you were going to go down. Exactly the point. Figure out how to go down roads that are hard. You are not good enough today as a designer and whatever product you're making to know it all. And so figure out how you're going to do things to challenge yourself. And it may just be in your own little bubble. Risk like crazy in your own bubble. You don't have to do it in public. You don't have to fail in public. Fail at home. Fail in your cubicle. Fail on, you know, on the bus to school. Keep failing because, and keep pushing yourself. It's what somebody said, like, was if, you, if you don't fall when you're skiing, you're probably not skiing hard enough. It's kind of the same idea here. It's like you should be failing often and fail fast. Learn that failure is good. Understand that failure is good. When people don't like your designs, don't let it go right there. It's, if, you, if it's not going to make it to market, understand why. There's a reason somebody's not making it, your design's not making it to market. It's too hard to make. It costs too much. It's ugly. Sometimes you make ugly stuff. It's all right. Not everything's going to be gold. Um, you know, they understand why it's, why it's not uh, working and continue to figure out how to risk more things. And it doesn't have to be the whole ship. It could be a small thing. It could, literally could be a shoelace or a zipper pull. It doesn't, you know... It doesn't have to be the whole garment. Figure out how to, how to take risks. The last one I'll leave you with is this one here, which um, I don't know if this ever happens, but it's becoming a master of your craft. Understand, A, what your craft is, because it's not design. There's something in design that is a passion that burns inside you, which is why you've paid tuition to come to this school. Understand and get better at it. This should never end. This mastery of your craft will take a lifetime. Get comfortable with that. Japanese guys that made swords, or still make swords, studied their entire lives under a master. Decades to get this right. Get comfortable with that. It should be awesome. It should be amazing to be able to look down a road that's the rest of your life. You've got, you've got that much runway to get this right. And that's kind of a cool thing. A PLM doesn't have that runway. They're right or wrong based on numbers, black and white, every season, every quarter, every year. That's how they're judged. They don't have this other thing like you have of this ability to be creative to imagine something in your head, bring it to market. People who work hard for their money every day are going to lay it down on a counter and take that thing that came out of your head that's going to make, that they believe is going to make their life better. By a fraction of a percent, by a whole bunch of percent. When I started at Under Armour, one of the reasons I came to Under Armour, I was at Arteryx at the time, was that Under Armour was going to revolutionize hunting. Two of the guys that founded Under Armour were big hunters, understood that 
people wearing cotton in the winter in the East Coast when they went hunting. And they said, why can't we make this out of Gore-Tex? And so we did. Um, so understanding that, that there's a way to make things, giant leaps are there. But if you're not open to it, if you're not re ready to risk it, and you're not really good at what you do, you're not going to get there. Um, and so I think sort of in closing, the, the biggest thing here is just the ability to be um, humble and a the ability to be open. Just leave your ego at the door. I climbed with a lot of uh, amazing mountaineers back in the day. No ego. Would carry as big a backpack as we all did, who were humping loads up whatever mountain we were going up and back down. They did all the work as much as we did. There was no ego. Just leave it at the door. I think one of the big things that we struggle with sometimes in the commercial life is that people have had bad experiences with high ego designers who believe that everything they spew out is perfect and golden. Um, don't be that guy or that girl. Just leave it at the door. It's not important. You don't need it. Um, having that bigger degree of humility, being open to other people's inputs is really what's going to make you uh, a great creative, a great designer. So I'm going to leave it there, and uh, I'm going to throw it up to some questions. Yes? How do you decide what battles to like win and which ones to lose? Like, what, what do you feel is important when you're deciding those? Uh, it's a hard one. I actually, um, so battles that you want to win and lose, like, you got to understand that the products are so, are you, a, what kind of a designer? What Are you making apparel, footwear? Soft goods. Soft goods? So say something gives you like a jacket. So now I want you to build me a new jacket for next year for whatever, going ice climbing, for example. It's like, well, if it's going to be an ice climbing jacket, I got to believe that you're an ice climber. Because if you're going to come and tell me why this jacket's better than the other one, most of it's going to come from the fact that you're an ice climber and maybe I'm not. So I'm going to need to look at you as an expert. You say, all right, well, if you need those pit zips there, if you need the cuffs longer, you need thumb loops, you need to do this because water's coming this way, uh, or ice is coming this way, you, you, i got to believe you. In your creation of that product, you should have things that you're going to overbuild by a factor of X. That overbuild um, is the separation of what, what is possibly you're going to lose. The core of the product, what you want to make it out of, for example, an ice climbing jacket should be flexible, it should be roomy, it should have gussets, it should have waterproofness, it should have an amazing hood. These are non-negotiables. So you got to know that those things are non-negotiables. Now I'm going to build on a layer of stuff that I think through my experience of being an expert because I climb a lot of ice, that I'm going to add into this because other people don't have it, they never thought of it, it bugs me every time I go ice climbing, this two, three things, um, I'm going to build that in there. And so those are some of the battles that you can then decide you're going to need to understand how you're going to win or lose those battles. Um, I think once you become a, a sort of a more accomplished designer, you just load those, preload those things you know you're going to lose just to let them, let them lose them. And then they never even talk about the other stuff that you could have lost. So, so you do get that kind of tactic as well. Anything else? Right. How do you get past the vendor space and start another design? How do you get 
constantly being like, well, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. What kind of materials would you want? And basically just right. kind of like make design and talk to other people who know about it. Or... Yeah, good point. Uh, good question. Yeah, the, the space one is hard because you know, I, I play outside all the time, summer and winter, so I'm, I'm pretty well accomplished on sort of like, you know, earthbound adventures, whether they're in the desert or on a mountain. Um, not so much in space. And so, yeah, I got that a lot. It's like, well, you've never been to space. How do you know it's going to work? And, and, but what I did understand was as I questioned people who have gone to space, pilots, other astronauts, I actually went to uh, Dover uh, in Delaware where they actually make the, the white extra, the, the ec when you go on space walks, those suits. Um, so I just, I just was a sponge. I just learned a lot. People told me a lot. I didn't profess to be the, the expert in space, but I'm pretty good on materials. I understand really well high performance materials, how to keep you warmer, drier, wick sweat, odor, whatever. I understood the parameters of what the product was going to go through. It's, you know, where they leave Earth, they're about 75, 80 degrees. When they get to zero gravity at 350,000 feet above the surface of the Earth, the temperature inside the cabin would probably be somewhere around uh, 32. Then they got to come all the way back down. A principal problem that we faced was how do I keep somebody warm and, warm and cool through that whole flight cycle? It's not like we're dealing with Tom Brady here. You know, these are, you go to an airport, you select eight people, those are the people going to space. I mean, they come in all shapes and sizes. They're not like high performance athletes. And so, you know, my biggest thing as I started talking to a lot of these astronauts, future astronauts, was what are you, what's going through your head? And the biggest thing was, you know, freaking nervous as hell. You know, one day I'm gonna walk out onto a tarmac and I'm going to get in a spaceship, and I'm going to go to space. And you can imagine, I mean, every pore inside is going to be pouring sweat, obviously. Um, so it's like, now I'm going to have a bunch of people who are wet, and it's 75 degrees in New Mexico. They're going to climb into a small cabin that's somewhat claustrophobic, and they're going to jet off into space where they're going to, you know, now I've got to mitigate all their sweat all their heat that they've built up inside their spacesuit, because when they get to 32 degrees, in an instant, it's going to get cold. They're going to start shivering. They're going to be uncomfortable. And the $250,000 that they've spent on their 90-minute ride to space, and they get four minutes at zero gravity to undo their seat belts and float around the cabin, they're going to be shivering. They're going to be thinking about, holy crap, I can't feel my fingers. My toes are numb. It's like I got to pee, you know, whatever they're going through their head. What they're not doing is looking out the freaking window at planet Earth from space, which is why they paid the 250 grand. So my job was, how do I keep you comfortable enough so that when you're at the apex of your flight, all your brain is completely focused on looking out the window? And so we do that with every athlete. I do that with Anthony Joshua. I do that with Tom Brady. Even The Rock is like when you're in the moment of competition is where I need you, every thought on how to be better than the other guys in your, in your field of play. And so I have a lot of history in making sure that people in the moment of their action of their sport are 100% right where they need to be. And this was no real, so there wasn't a difference. And so as people ask me, it's like, well, you've never been to space. Like, I know, but I get what the problems are going to be facing. And that comes back through 
trying to become a master and staying open to people telling you things and understanding how to ingest information and then make good use of it. Any other questions? Yeah. You talked about uh, being a disciplined designer. Right. How do you go about developing that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it comes down here last one. <laughs> this one right here. Um, a lot of trial and error. I think, like, I'm a massive procrastinator. If you give me a week to do something, I will do it in like 10 minutes before I got to hand it in. Like, that's the guy I have always been. So I know that about myself. So, so I think if you understand some of those things that you're not good at, like deadlines, um, then then I think you can start to become you start to manage that time better. Um, I know a lot of designers who sketch all the time. I'm in a meeting, I'm talking about important stuff, and they're freaking doodling, you know, whatever they're doodling in their notebook. It's like they're not paying attention. But, but to me, they're already started to create things that as I'm speaking it, they're already creating them. So I think when you think about how can you use your time most efficiently, that helps become a more disciplined designer. I think the other thing is really getting good at becoming an expert in something and not everything. Don't be a jack of all trades. Like, jack of all trades on an innovation side, amazing. Those are the people that I want. People who are massively curious, who all they want to do is take stuff apart, um, but then they can reassemble all kinds of things, not just a thing. So if you're really interested in like materials or, or uh, construction or new constructions, like find things that really pique your interest and sort of go there and then really embody people outside of that who can help you and just rely on them. So don't feel that you gotta lift everything all by yourself. Um, and that'll help break that world apart and then you can sort of be good at this thing and the people know you're, you're good at that and, and then I think you can become more disciplined in that in that space. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.